All right, so like I said, uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, specifically verses 3 through 6 this morning. And so um, if you haven't already turned there, I ask that you do so. Again, that's on page 976 in the Black Pew Bibles, I believe. Uh, but yeah, follow along with me as I read God's word. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This morning, we're going to be asking ourselves the most important question in the world. Why do we exist? Why are we here? What is your purpose and my purpose in the universe? Why did God make all of this? We've got to ask ourselves that question because if there is an answer, which there is, then we better have a good idea about what it is. Think about it. Think of tools. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of different kinds of tools that you can buy. Um, There's, I was just trying to think of a couple. There's screwdrivers, hammers, wrenches, saws, axes, and so on. And then even within each of those different kinds, there's specific variations of them at different sizes. There's a ridiculous number of tools out there that you can buy. Um, Each one is designed to fulfill a specific purpose, and you have to know what that purpose is so that you can use those tools properly. You don't use a screwdriver, screwdriver on a nail. You can try to use a hammer to cut wood, but you're going to have a much harder and messier time with it than if you had used a hatchet or an axe. My point is that every tool is designed for a purpose. And when you use the wrong one, you're more likely to break something than to achieve your goal. We make a mess of things when we use things for the wrong reason or the wrong purpose. So that begs the question, what is our purpose? What can we do to live fulfilling lives? That is the question I intend to answer with the rest of this sermon. Um, And that's the question that Paul, as we'll see, answers in Ephesians 1, 3 3 through 6. And I've intentionally chosen this topic and passage to include in our all-sufficient Christ sermon series because a series like this runs the risk of making us forget something. We've already looked at, we've had a couple sermons, we've, had, we've looked at how Christ is sufficient for our sin, how Christ is sufficient for our sanctification, for our anxiety, um, for our security. In all of those things, Christ is sufficient for us, but it's easy to forget something. Jesus does not exist to meet our needs. Yes, he came to serve, and he does do that. But make no mistake, he does not exist simply to satisfy you. It's the other way around. You are not his purpose, he is yours. As you will see, we exist to exalt him, and we do that best by depending on him each and every single day. 
We exist to glorify God. And as John Piper so famously puts it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So to help you see what I'm talking about, I want to look at three main ideas and make our way through the text. The first one is gonna be God's purpose for humanity. Then we're gonna look, we're gonna kind of zoom in and look at God's purpose for Christians. And then ultimately, we're gonna try to get more practical and look at God's purpose for you. So like I said, we're gonna start really general and then try to get more specific so that it makes more sense for you. You can take away um, how, to, how to walk with Christ in light of these truths. I want each of you to understand why God made you. And I want to help you see that the most fulfilling life you could possibly live is a life resting and abiding in the grace of Jesus Christ. If you take nothing else away from the sermon, that's what I want you to get, that your most fulfilling satisfying life is one spent resting and abiding in the grace of Jesus Christ. So let's start with the big picture. What is God's purpose, not just for you, not just for Christians, but for all of humanity? Look with me again at verse uh, three in Ephesians one. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's easy to gloss over verses like this, but don't miss the significance of it. Paul is blessing God. This section in Ephesians, really all of, man, all of Ephesians 1 and chapter 2, I mean, really the whole letter, but This section in particular in Ephesians is incredibly rich with teaching for us to learn from. But that isn't Paul's primary purpose for saying this. Notice what he says at the very beginning of verse three. His whole intention with this passage is to proclaim the greatness and goodness of God. He's rejoicing, he's proclaiming this to praise God. Let's keep going. Follow along as I keep reading. I'll I'll, Reread the whole passage again. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And here we go. Here's his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice that verse six. The word to is key here. It's telling us why God did everything described in the previous verses. He did all of that stuff to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the reason all of that was done, so that he might be praised. Again, why is Paul pointing all of this out? Not just to teach the Ephesians, it's to praise God. Paul bookends this passage with exaltations to God. And this shouldn't surprise us. You can't read a letter from Paul and not see that his singular and overriding passion in this life was that he lived for God. As he puts it succinctly in Philippians, to live is Christ. That was true for him. We, we know that was true. 
We see that in his letters. We know that from historical evidence of just the incredible things that he endured and went through for the sake of his ministry. Um, His life was consumed by that one primary purpose, to make much of God, to show others how magnificent God is, to demonstrate his character, his justice, his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness, his love, all of those things. Every aspect of his life revolved around that, from the places he traveled to, to the jobs that he did, um, to the relationships he poured himself into. But here's the thing, he didn't just see that as his purpose. He saw that as the purpose for all of mankind as well. He calls for all of us to live for the glory of God. According to Paul, that is your purpose too. You exist to glorify God. You exist to tell his story and make him the central figure of your life. And you don't just have to take Paul's or my word for that. God himself makes that abundantly clear in scripture. Just listen to his own words to the prophet Isaiah. I just wanted to pick out, there's plenty of passages that you could go to, but there's just two passages I wanted to quote to you where God outlines exactly why he made us. Um, So one is Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. God said this, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that I might, that they might declare my praise. So do you see that? Why did he form us? For myself that they might declare my praise. Both animals and human beings alike were formed to declare God's praise. Or take Isaiah 48, verses uh, 9 and 10, or maybe that's 9 through 11. I can't remember. But starting in verse 9, God said this, and you don't get much clearer than this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. And he's talking about killing them. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Again, you don't get much clearer than that. God is jealous for his own anger and we exist to praise him for it. And the reality is that might seem or sound selfish or arrogant, but he is God. Who else is greater and worthy of praise and honor? He is the ultimate one to worship. So that makes sense. There, there would be no other, it wouldn't make sense for him to call us to worship or to praise and glorify anyone or anything else except himself. Friends, that's a problem for us because we don't naturally want to live for God. That is what our sinful nature is at its most fundamental level. Sin is self-glorification, and every one of us wants it. We want glory. We don't want to give it to God. All of us want to live for ourselves. We want the world to please us. 
We demand attention and affirmation from others. We want everything to go our way, and we get mad when it doesn't. And in all of that sin, by seeking our own glory rather than God's, we reject our very purpose for existence. We scorn our maker, and the consequences of that are dire. There is nothing scarier, in my opinion, than this fact. Every single human being will glorify God one way or another. Um, And for those in sin, though, it will be through judgment and wrath. Just think about that. Every single human being will glorify God one way or the other. And for those in their sin, it will be through judgment and wrath. We can try to forsake our purpose, but as Romans 9.22 says, God's glory will be displayed through the power of his wrath upon the unrighteous. Because that is a sobering reality, and it sounds harsh, but it's not. Think about it. If a human judge was regularly letting murderers, thieves, other criminals, people who we know are guilty of the crimes that they have committed, if a, if a human judge has all of those people in his courtroom and he lets all of them go without a conviction, we wouldn't say that he's a good judge. None of us would say that. We would say he's corrupt. The same is true of God. By convicting those who glorify themselves rather than him, he is being just and honorable. Now, that's scary for us because that means we warrant that that punishment. His holiness demands judgment, and he will be glorified by punishing sinners. So let me ask you, What hope do we have in light of that? How can we hope to glorify God in such a way that doesn't lead to death? That is the question we'll take up in my second point. So my second point is looking at God's purpose for Christians. So far, we have seen that we exist to glorify God, but what I want you to begin to see here is that there are two different ways that this could happen. One, as we've already talked about, is through God's judgment. That is a terrifying prospect. But Paul is showing us another way here in this passage, and it's a way that is far better and so much better for us. So let's focus back on Ephesians 1. Um, Again, I want to read through the whole passage because there's so much here, looking at verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved." Redeemer, there is no better news than this. The gospel is the story of God blessing his people with a hope for a higher purpose than just judgment. From even before creation began, as he says here, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, 
From even before creation began, God intended to rescue sinners from themselves. If you have placed your faith in Christ, that's you. For those who have turned from his glory and sought their own, he made a way through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be made holy and blameless before him as we see in verse four. God's intention, and this is, this is what I think is so remarkable about how we think about this. God's intention was never to be glorified solely through judgment. People will be judged. People are dead in their sin because they have not turned to Jesus Christ. Maybe that's true of some of us in here. God, but God's intention, again, was never to be glorified solely through the judgment of mankind. It wasn't even his intention to be most glorified through that. That's the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. God's intent all along has been to display his glory most vibrantly through grace shown to unworthy sinners like you and me. We have been given love that we don't deserve. We have been adopted though we were rebellious orphans. We have been made holy and blameless, though we sin each and every single day. And all of those realities are granted to us by Jesus Christ. He truly is our all-sufficient Christ. Through our union with him, we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in all of that, those who have been given grace through Jesus Christ radiate God's glory in the greatest possible way. Remember, again, verse six, God gave his saints all of these things. He's given you all of these blessings to the praise of his glorious grace. If you don't take anything else away from my sermon this morning, like I was saying at the beginning, please hear this. Your most fulfilling life will not be one where you have ease and comfort. You will not be most happy by accumulating a lot of wealth or achieving great prestige in your career. That might be enjoyable, but that will not make you happy like you're hoping it will. Your greenest pasture is not the life where you never have to face challenges or where you never fail or make mistakes. When we choose those paths for ourselves, when we choose the easy, comfortable paths, it is usually because we want to be able to go through life self-reliant. We want to do something that we can take control of, that we can manage by ourselves. We don't want to have to depend on anyone else, but that isn't what Paul is telling us. Your most fulfilling life will be one spent resting and abiding in the grace of Jesus Christ. That life is a life dependent upon someone else. It's a life dependent upon him. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses four through nine. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, we so often look to our own works for fulfillment. What is it for you? What is that one thing in your life that you think, you know what, when I have that thing, I will be content, I will be happy. I'm just waiting to get that one thing. What is that for you? Friends, we get distracted by those kinds of desires and God becomes secondary in our lives. In turn, we begin to think that we can't depend upon Christ or we might even see doing so as a weakness that we should be able to handle things on our own better. Um, I know that's been a thought that I have frequently erred in thinking that the Christian life to grow in maturity means to be able to be more self-sufficient, but it's the exact opposite and because of that, we get upset when God, with God when trials come and we can't handle them on our own. We, th- we think we should be able to, and we get upset with him because we can't handle them on our own. We experience some form of suffering, and what do we do? We look to ourselves to fix it. Or maybe we ignore God and rely on someone else or something else. The reality is, though, you are never in a better place than when you are clinging to Jesus to sustain you. Even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's painful and you have tears streaming down your face, when you are clinging to Christ with desperation, that is the best place you could ever be. The reality is, You are never in a better place than when you're clinging to Christ. And God is actually being kind to bring circumstances into your life to guide you back to him. When he gives us challenges, when he gives us difficulties and suffering that forces us basically to turn back to him, that is his kindness to us, that he's reminding us of the posture of dependence and humility that we are always intended to have and that is good for us. That is what you were designed to do. That is where you're meant to be and that is where God's blessings are found. Christian, God's will for you is that you would abide in Jesus Christ. Depend upon his grace, not your works. I want to use my last point to help you understand, though, what that practically can look like for you personally. So let's consider that now. In God's purpose for you, and given what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, um, I wanted to point out two practical implications that I want us to consider um, two things that, two kind of implications that I think we can draw out of what we've already been looking at and from the text. The first one is that we have to recalibrate our view of Christian maturity, like I've already been talking about. Stop for a second and think about some people who you would consider really mature in the Christian faith. Who do you wish to be like? Now, why? Why do you want to be like that person? Why do you see those people as mature Christians? Sadly, I think far too often we look at competency far more often than character when we look to people that we want to imitate, 
When we think about maturity, we think about competency, not character. We measure someone's maturity by how theologically knowledgeable they are or how skilled they are at teaching or speaking. We look to charisma or success and we think that indicates maturity. So we want to be like those people. We want to be like those who are influential around us. Now, don't hear me saying that those things are necessarily bad. They're not necessarily. Those can all be great qualities to imitate in others. But I am saying that it is bad if we are using those things as our indicators for what Christian maturity is. They're not. Someone can have incredible theological knowledge and have no maturity in the Christian faith. No understanding of what we've been talking about already. In fact, theological knowledge oftentimes can puff us up and make us think that we can be more self-reliant. So it can actually have the opposite effect. Redeemer, a mature Christian is a humble one. It is a Christian who doesn't seek control or influence for personal gain. Rather, it is one who trusts Jesus with whatever life brings. Maturity is measured by reliance upon Jesus, not ourselves, in the midst of our weaknesses, failures, and sin. The mature Christian makes mistakes and fails. Their life might not look like it's all put together. That Christian might experience sadness and anxiety and disappointment. In fact, they not might, they will, Mature Christians experience all of those things too. Again, one thing, one error that I think I've always thought about is that maturity means always being stoic, always being able to like never be phased by anything that life throws at you. When I look at scripture, when I look at this passage, when I think about what God teaches us about depending upon him, when I look at the Psalms, that is not what I see. That is not a biblical idea. The mature Christian is one who faces those experiences of sadness, anxiety, disappointment. They acknowledge the pain and emotional turmoil they might experience because of things that, suffering that they endured in this life. But in the midst of those things, they choose to find their hope identity, and worth in Jesus. They don't listen to those emotions. They don't turn away from God. They turn to him. They draw near to him in the midst of them. A mature Christian is one who experiences all of the difficulties of life and decides to cling to Jesus and nothing else in all of them. When you see someone who is struggling and they go to Jesus in that struggle, Watch them and learn from them. That is mature Christian living. That is what Paul is calling us to. Commend them, imitate them. So that's the first implication I wanted to touch on. The second one I wanna bring up is this. We shouldn't rely on our spiritual zeal or success to gauge our security in Jesus Christ or to gauge how God loves us by those things. I bring this up because I have seen this a lot, and I think this is a very common tendency in, in younger Christians, or just newer Christians, that 
we so often look to the fervor, the excitement, the um, affection, the emotional affection that we have for God, the, the ease at which we have in going to spiritual disciplines, the eagerness we have to pray and go to the word. It's easy to look to those things uh, as the gauge for what our relationship is with God. But our relationship with God is secure in Christ. It is not measured by those things. Numerous pastors and authors have reflected on the teachings of Paul. And um, again, as I was saying, they've recognized that in the early stages of the Christian life, we frequently rely too heavily on how strong or weak our emotions are towards God. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way when regarding less mature Christians. He says, because of the weakness of his faith, our infant Christian will struggle with spiritual insecurity. Even as Christians, we have two systems of salvation, self-salvation and Christ's salvation. Baby Christians, but I would add all Christians struggle with this to a degree, are people who, though they intellectually believe Christ is their savior, actually and psychologically and functionally in their day-to-day lives act as if something else is their savior. Radically, they are still insecure. They still really don't believe Jesus loves them. They still don't really believe they're forgiven. In a sense, they still are really trying to earn that forgiveness. And as long as you're in that state, you're still a baby. You'll never get out of babyhood. Tony Ranke um, has similar thoughts in a book that he wrote called Newton on the Christian Life. And just as a quick aside, um, amazing book. If you want a book to read, read Newton on the Christian Life. It is probably my favorite book outside of the Bible. Amazing. I highly recommend it. But Tony Ranke says this in that book. The infant Christian attempts to live off of his fluctuating affections and as a result finds his tank empty. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I've experienced that. Later, he will learn to live off truth in the all-sufficiency of the unchanging Christ, and he will see how spiritual knowledge informs and stokes his affections. So he doesn't rely on the affections, but his knowledge and security actually strengthens them. The old Christian has a more solid, judicious, connected views of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glories of his person and redeeming love. Hence, his hope is more established, his dependence more simple, and his peace and strength more abiding and uniform than in the case of the young convert. So how do we do that? We must rest in the promises of God that we know are fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection. His finished work, not our emotions, should be what we place our confidence in. Look at passages such as Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, and remind yourself that feelings don't dictate reality. These do. God's word is far more trustworthy than your own feelings, so believe it, not yourself. That has, that has personally been a really hard lesson for me to learn over the years, and God has frankly had to use, because I'm, I'm a really stubborn person and it takes a lot for me to learn a lesson, God has used numerous seasons of deep depression to begin to teach me that. It is a hard lesson to learn. 
Those seasons have been difficult, but I'm grateful for them, if not for any other reason that the Lord has been teaching me, or at least beginning to teach me, I'm still very new to this reality, but just to trust the word and not myself. When you begin to doubt God's love for you, don't look to your own spiritual fervor or lack thereof for security. Look to the cross. That is where God's love for you is truly on display. Look to God's promises and faithfulness. That is what, really, what it really means to abide in the grace of Jesus Christ. I wanna read one more quote from uh, Renke's book that sums up both of these implications that I've talked about, I think, pretty well. He says this, so imagine this, let this be the picture in which we are all pursuing together as, as members of this church, as, as Christians. Let's all pursue this together. The mature Christian life is marked by a daily return to the Lamb of God and diligent Bible reading, not merely as a daily discipline, but as a means to lead to heart-satisfying delight in the all-sufficient Savior. The mature Christian prays not out of a sense of mere duty, but because the all-sufficiency of Christ draws him to ask and plead in confidence. He listens intently to sermons because he awaits glimpses of the precious Savior. The more he sees of Christ, the more he seeks by the means of grace, scripture reading, prayer, and fellowship with the gathered church, his spiritual life is structured by discipline. Redeemer, we exist to glorify God. Better yet, we exist to rest and abide in his grace. We were predestined and designed to find peace and security in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Make that your top priority each and every day. Your best days are not days where everything works out in your favor and God is far from your mind. Your best days are days when you are on your knees clinging to Jesus, whether it be from gratitude or suffering. He is your all-sufficient Christ. Go to him and know that in doing so, you display the most beautiful colors of God's glory. He has set you apart for that very, very purpose. So let's walk in that purpose together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, let that be so. Let us be a church that is radically dependent and trusting upon Jesus Christ. That we would be guided, that we would be anchored by him and by your word, that the lies that we so easily believe, that we hear within our own heads, that the world tells us that we would submit those to your word and your promises. Help us to be men and women and children whose greatest desire is to show your power and your glory through our lives by being joyfully dependent upon our all-sufficient Christ. I pray this in his name, amen.